Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome to you all. Uh, my name is Tracy Locke. I'm the curator of Australian art. And I would like to um, welcome you here to today. Thank you so much for coming in and, and joining us on this talk. The talk today is actually going to be in two parts. It's going to focus on two major new acquisitions. And so the first of which um, is over here, this work by H.J. Johnston, a billabong in the Goulburn Valley, dated 1878. And the other work I'm going to talk about, and actually I'm going to also be joined by Justin Gare from Art Lab, to speak about the James Oatley clock, long case clock. So we might get you to shuffle uh, in a minute so that you can all see the clock when we speak about it. Um, what I would like to pause and note at this point is both of these acquisitions have been the result of uh, private benefaction support. Uh, the H.J. Johnston has been uh, gifted uh, through the generosity of Marilyn and Ron Seidel. Unfortunately, both of them couldn't be here with us today, but I do wish to acknowledge their generosity and support. They're great South Australians, but extremely discreet and modest. As is the same with the long case clock just around the corner, that is a major gift to us as a result of the generosity of Alistair Hunter, and he has given that clock in memory of his paternal grandparents. So we're, we're continue to grow as an institution as a result of this extraordinary generosity from from wonderful South Australians and the way that they do it in such a modest, discreet way is, is, is humbling and rather refreshing, one might say, in the age of Instagram and Facebook. But to begin, I will talk about this work here, uh, the H.J. Johnston, and some of you may be thinking it looks a little bit familiar, but why does it look so familiar? The work is quite an exciting find. It actually surfaced recently on the market and it is what we now realise is a prototype of our own H.J. Johnston painting, Evening Shadows. And our painting by H.J. Johnston, Evening Shadows, which is not here, it's actually literally on its way back from being exhibited in a contemporary art exhibition in Melbourne uh, at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in an exhibition of the work uh, by Tom Nicholson. I'm going to kind of follow up on that point in a minute, but um, I would love to have had Evening Shadows here to show you so that we could compare the two. So this work was very important because it's the earliest known version of Evening Shadows by H.J. Johnston. Now, the story about Evening Shadows that's on its way back from Melbourne is it's a little confusing, but bear with me. It's a very famous work and it's an important work to us here in South Australia because it's the very first work that ever entered our collection in 1881, and it was painted in 1880. It even has an accession number of 0 
Now, what became very interesting about that painting was it was always, almost immediately, was a very popular painting, quite large, over one metre high, nearly two metres across, a very impressive painting. But it was always popular, always loved. And it seemed it was so loved, it was used as a teaching tool uh, for art students. Now, over time, tracking across time to the 1990s, the gallery got a phone call about another version of Evening Shadows that surfaced on the market. To cut a long story short, it turns out that as a teaching tool, it is the most copied painting in Australian art history. We have documented over 400 versions of it. And to add to the confusion, of the, as it's, so it's so they're proliferating around the world. Everyone knows of an evening shadows. To add to the confusion, what has become increasingly clear is that the artist himself copied the painting. <laughs> and I think so far, after going a little bit cross-eyed, at the moment, I've documented about 10 versions by the artist. But what's exciting is this one here that we have in our collection now is the earliest. It is signed and it's dated, and it's surfaced in a Californian collection. And you may think, why California? Well, H.J. Johnston was actually only in Australia for about 25 years. He came out to try his luck on the gold fields, came out from England, and he ended up becoming a hugely successful photographer. But in the late 1870s, he left Australia, he was mostly based in Melbourne, and he travelled to California, where there was actually a very vibrant landscape painting scene. He moved on there to England. And in England, later in life, he continued to make versions of evening shadows. Now, I mentioned he was a photographer. He actually established one of the most um, successful photography business occurring or present in Melbourne in the 1860s and the 1870s. And that photography business continued into the early 20th century. So what does that tell us? It tells us that, well, firstly, he actually secretly really wanted to be a great painter, not a great photographer. But he was able to make money, but he was also able to make multiples. So he not only took photographs of the landscape, he became famous for his photographs also of celebrities, but he also took photographs of paintings. So things get very confusing, and I've decided he was sort of a proto-postmodernist, if you like, you know. So he was revisiting his subjects all the time, and often he would modify certain aspects in his painting compositions. So what you'll see here is um, it has this particular painting, which he has titled, by the way, H.J. Johnston often changed the title, titles of his paintings, uh, to kind of suit the market, okay? So to get some, perhaps, Sydney-based purchases, he would give them a Goulburn Valley title. Um, our, our own Evening Shadows, there's an Evening Shadows backwater of the Murrumbidgee as well, and then this one, Goulburn. So he kind of ticked off all of the rivers in Australia to try and um, <laughs> uh, make sure he had uh, interested um, a market of interested people for these particular subjects. What 
I guess the point here is the actual precise location was irrelevant. The point was that these scenes were highly generalised and they were made to appeal to a mass market and they were scenes that complied to sort of the second generation of the picturesque, okay? So they were composed scenes, almost likely based on his own photography images. That's why this work has a very hard, if you like, photographic quality to it. And he's used the, the conventions of um, the picturesque to frame his compositions uh, by two screens and we have the classic centre uh, focus and the classic vignette. In this case here, uh, a scene with two Aboriginal figures. Now, this was, a, a, there was a taste for these kind of nostalgic images uh, of the period. And these landscapes were highly sort of um, composed, were talking about a time that had passed. So they were like meditations on the passage of time. Now, um, of course, in reality, in, in Melbourne, uh, in the 1870s, Aboriginal people were being moved from their lands, our first peoples, and into reserves. And so he's reflecting on this image as this was sort of an important image for uh, looking back in, in time in Australia and what once was. Now, what's important here is that uh, this work today really presents itself and is, uh, can be read by us as a potent symbol of our first people's dispossession and their removal from our lands. And that brings us full circle back to the exhibition uh, in Melbourne at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art because contemporary artists and people today are referring back to these kinds of images to educate our audiences, to um, reconsider our past and liven it up again and, 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 and reach a greater understanding of the truths that were actually occurring during this time. So for me too, these images that H.J. Johnston painted, and, and painted many of, um, you know, of course referring to all of these river systems, and we all know of the Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin and the tragedy uh, that is occurring on that point. So this painting, like the clock in a moment, I, I hope to convey to you today, this painting is not locked in time in 1878. This painting is speaking to us about issues that are relevant right now. And, and certainly for me, this is what making, uh, working with this collection, what makes it so exciting. Um, so I think what I'll do is, is end my um, discussion of this work. I have to just, I will briefly mention that um, there was a, a strong market for these Australian subjects in California and in England, uh, particularly in England because there was a kind of hunger for images of the landscape that was sort of appeared untouched at a time when England had gone through the Industrial Revolution and land usage was undergoing a lot of change. People wanted to look at an ideal landscape. So um, 
I will end on that point and do my double act now uh, with, with Justin. But what I would encourage you to do, if you possibly can, is move across to the centre so that you can see the clock as we speak about it. Did you want to just stand with me? I'll talk briefly, yes. Are you able to... Would you mind, sorry, it's good for your blood circulation if you do move. Keep moving. And if you can just shuffle over, it would be great. We need some mirrors or something to, to reflect it to you. And please don't worry about blocking this corridor. People can move around you if you want to shuffle. Please shuffle in front of the, the Rodin. So I'll now um, just discuss with you the second major acquisition that has entered the collection. And sometimes uh, works of art come up in your curatorial career that um, you feel like are a once-in-a-lifetime moment. And certainly with regard to this long case clock, that was, that was my experience because objects of this rarity and this significance and this quality almost never arrive. Now, this long case clock by James Oatley is only one of 17 known. Um, and it is, in fact, numbered on the clock face number seven. It's the second earliest known by James Oatley, made in 1820 in Sydney. And James Oatley was a renowned watchmaker and clockmaker. He, um, he didn't arrive in Australia by choice. <laughs> he got sent here uh, for having committed the grievous crime of stealing two feather beds. Uh, but he was convicted to, uh, sentenced to death in 1814 in, in England. And that was modified to sentence to life and a life in Australia as a convict. But of course, as things uh, happened in those early days in Sydney, the administrators were very swift to pick up on convicts who had fantastic skills. And that's what happened to James Oatley. Lachlan Macquarie was the, the governor, and he uh, appointed James Oatley as the uh, keeper of the town clock in Sydney. And then he commissioned James Oatley to create a clock for the very elegant, beautiful Francis Greenway pediment of the Hyde Park barracks. And whenever you arrive in Sydney and head to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, you'll go along Macquarie Street and you will see James Oatley's clock there before you in all its elegance. So James Oatley established a business uh, in Sydney in George Street. And why, why I have Justin here with me is that this clock had actually remained in the same family's collection uh, since 1840. And the collection it came from was the, the Brush family. The Brush family were a family of saddle makers and they had a business in George Street 500 metres away from where James Oakley was, had his business. 
So over time in this one family, this clock has moved many times. And so it came to us in original condition, which is what you want. That's what curators and conservators love. Oh, it's, it's in original condition. No one has tampered with it. And what that meant was it just needed a little bit of care. So it needed specialist care. And we, of course, engaged Justin Gare, who's a specialist particularly in objects and working with timber, but also the care of a horologist to look at the internal workings of the clock. Now, the clock itself is a sort of classic Regency example, very elegant, uh, based on the Thomas Sheraton style, which was uh, at its height in England between 1785 and 1820. And it was a kind of fine, lightweight style of furniture that was very distinctive for its uh, inlays, its veneers and inlays. So instead of having tulip wood or satin wood inlays, or the use of mahogany, what we see here is an Australian version of that with its use of red cedar and casuarina, so she-oak inlays. When you get a moment later, please, I urge you to have a very close look at the, the working of it. The cabinetry is exquisite and, and the, the veneer inlay. So I think what I'll do now is hand over to Justin, we've got the, we've got the clock on, um, and Justin will speak a little bit about some of the, the interesting things that occurred as we were conserving this clock, and when Justin finishes, I do just want to talk about the time that this clock is now set at. Okay. Uh, thank you, Tracy. Um, yes, uh, the Art Gallery's coup uh, receiving this clock, also is my coup. I never thought I'd end up working on a uh, James Oatley clock. Um, and uh, I should add, uh, before I started it, uh, I inspected it with Tracy, and we can see that it's, it was in completely original condition, bar a few, mi a few minor little details, which, or f few minor repairs over the years. Um, I should also add, um, for those people who know Martin Cook, Martin Cook, uh, who was uh, the main buyer for David Roche, uh, he's also dealt, uh, or eight Oatley clocks have passed through his hands. So when he heard that the Art Gallery of South Australia had acquired one, or was in the process of acquiring one, um, well, needless to say, he, uh, he wet his pants and was uh, <laughs> rather excited to, to inspect the clock. So he came to Art Lab and inspected the clock, and uh, his, his, I'll quote you word for word, he says, Justin, do not touch that clock. He says, it's it's in the best original condition out of all the clocks he has seen. So we've got the Martin Cook uh, steel, seal of approval on, on the clock. Um, so th that was actually the Friday before he died. Uh, the, the day before he died, the Monday, he rang me still obsessing over the clock. So uh, whenever I look at this clock, I think, well, this is, well, this is probably the last object that made him happy. So I think he died a happy man. Um, uh, I should also say that um, Martin believes that the face was engraved by Joseph Lysett, who is also a, a convict um, acquaintance of, uh, uh, of Oatley. Um, well, it believes all of the faces were, were uh, engraved by um, Lysett. So there's a nice double convict um, uh, connection with the clock. Regarding the work on the clock, um, 
it, it had, I won't say unfortunately, but just as per course over the, over the many decades that an object survives, particularly a, a timber object, generally it gets polished. Uh, and someone has, um, at some point, put on some sort of mixture which, um, well, when, I, when we uh, analyse it, seems to be a concoction of uh, a, a, some sort of wax, similar to beeswax, and an oil. Which, um, so we were hoping that we would be able to remove that, but unfortunately we're, uh, it is so stubborn uh, that all the solvents that we could try to remove it with, um, uh, or the only the solvents which we could use, which wouldn't dissolve the original surface surface underneath, wouldn't touch it. So we've now still got uh, the original surface underneath, and then at some later date, some other concoction that's been put on. But that's all there. That's all a legitimate part of its history. As you, if you look at it closely, I mean, it looks quite good there. You can see the uh, the apex uh, between the uh, the swan neck or broken uh, pediment there. Uh, the little pieces missing, there are little pieces missing here and there. I've replaced a couple of tiny veneers on the bottom, just because they were a bit disfiguring. Um, but on the whole, what you see is what you get. It's, that's, that's what, uh, that's, that shows it's um, hundred uh, two, sorry, 200 years of life in Australia. Yeah. Um, oh, I've got a few more minutes? One minute. One minute. Uh, if it, well, if anyone's interested, I've got a, f uh, a couple of photographs of the details of, of the mechanics inside the clock, uh, which I can show you are uh, hallmarks of uh, Oatley, uh, as distinct from most clocks that are made in England uh, or uh, at that period of time. And, and Justin's quite right in that uh, some people have said, well, what's so important about a James Oatley clock? And not only is the cabinetry important because of its elegance, but its internal workings were solely made in Australia. So the, the components were not imported from Britain out to Australia. And um, to identify that in particular um, is, involves quite a lot of detail, but I can assure you uh, this particular clock has all of the classic characteristics of an Oatley-made clock. So it's quite, quite a thrill. Um, and I think what I will do, because people might have questions for us, what I will do is just close and conclude uh, with the idea that it is a working clock. It is an eight-day clock. And according to our staff here, it was only losing just under 30 seconds a day. Pretty precise. However, just for a little while, um, we have stopped the clock and we've stopped it uh, at two minutes to midnight. And we've done so because, as I was speaking about earlier, these objects in these spaces are here to resonate and speak to us about today. So we have uh, symbolically left the clock at two minutes to midnight to reference the doomsday clock, which in January this year was set forward to two minutes before midnight, so it was ratcheted up closer to midnight. Um, now, the doomsday clock is really um, a symbol for the likelihood of a man-made catastrophe. And there was a big news conference in, in Washington, D.C. this year about the clock increasing to two minutes to midnight because of not only nuclear threat, the doomsday clock first started in 1947 
and it started seven minutes away from midnight and it was at the height of uh, you know nuclear issues um, and in 1953 it was put forward at the height of the Cold War to two minutes to midnight and over time it shifts back and forward um, but it's an indicator it's a symbol of where we are at uh, in our world at the moment so it was pushed forward to two minutes on the basis of the information war that is undergoing around the world but the crisis of climate change and also the impending nuclear threat so this particular doomsday clock is uh, founded by, was originally founded by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And they have a board of scientists, they meet twice a year to revisit the time on the clock. And that board has a number of sponsors and supporters that advise them that are Nobel Prize winners. So this is a powerhouse pack of thinkers that are adjusting the clock. So it, the idea was uh, put forward and I thought it was a, a wonderful idea for us to uh, energize and, and make this clock speak to us today, even though it's been working since 1820. Uh, the clock itself has witnessed incredible change. But I certainly think for our visitors and for our children to be aware of the doomsday clock and the issues that we face every day uh, are really important. And that's an important role for us here at, at the Art Gallery. Um, so again, I'll, I'll finish at that point and I would uh, invite, very much happy to invite any questions that you may have for either myself or Justin, I've kept a lid on poor Justin, I'm sorry, because <laughs> Justin, Justin talks too much, so I, I'm kind of <laughs> in, in the most wonderful way, but I've, I've tried to keep it fairly short, but he's a font of expertise and knowledge, and uh, we work very closely here at the Art Gallery of South Australia with the conservators at Art Lab, and they are absolutely uh, wonderful uh, specialists. So I'll just pause for a moment and uh, would very much like to invite any questions from, from the group. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Are there any questions? Yes. Yes, he was pardoned in 1821. Yes, Well, 180 years, and um, 
it still retains all that evidence. So, um, there are, um, sorry, Justin, but just to also help with that question is, um, there is a little network of people in Australia who've worked on James Oatley clocks and they are full of knowledge and have been sharing information with, with Justin. There's also some published articles in the Australiana magazine, Australiana magazine. Um, and uh, so there's pieces of information around and records that have been made. And I do believe a, a book is underway as well, which will be very exciting. Um, so yeah, it's sort of piecing together bits of information, yes. Ah, okay. So the Doomsday Clock was founded by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and they have a board and on their board are a number of other scientists and they meet twice a year and that board is also sponsored or supported by a group of Nobel Prize winners. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, um, they're pretty, they, uh, at a quick glance, they all look the same, but there are lots of little uh, details. There are lots of details uh, regarding the capitals. Um, generally, they're all a, a, a broken pediment or a swan neck pediment uh, with different little finials on the side. Some have finials on the side, some don't. Some have ball feet, some have claw feet. Uh, but the, uh, this one has a very remarkable well, it looks like a hi-fi speaker at the bottom, <laughs> a very early 1820 hi-fi speaker, um, which is actually readed. And um, uh, so it's a very bizarre sort of decorative motif. Um, uh, but yeah, they're essentially all the same, but there's lots of little lovely details and all the variation. But there are none that exactly the same. What, what also happened at the time is the cabinet makers were made using pattern books. And so the patterns tend to be fairly, fairly similar, and really they're just using British patterns but Australian materials. Um, but he also produced um, shorter clocks and also and the, the long case clocks. The well has has the weights. Yeah. We've got the lead weights here, and the chime uh, uh, is on top of the uh, the uh, the. the the clock mechanism, so, um, uh, yeah. There's just one big bell, yeah. It does chime, yeah. I haven't heard it chime, but... Uh, I have, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Hour, I believe, yeah. yeah. Um, well, they, uh, James Oatley made, well, James Oatley was the clockmaker, uh, yes, and well, I'm assuming he would have had uh, cabinet makers or whether he made the, ca the, the cases. He uh, had I mean, people make the case and right. we think it may have been by Alexander Hart, um, but he also had um, other convict watch and clockmakers working under him, yeah, so I believe clock, there are a great people full of knowledge and horologists are specialists with clocks, you know, they're quite complex. And we understand that all the different components may have been made um, by different people, but under the eye of Oatley, yes. Yes? Um, 
witness? Yeah, from what I can find out, um, I don't know his training in England, but I do understand he was um, one of the, the best and most skilled clockmakers to arrive in the colony. I don't know whether he was necessarily one of the greatest in Britain or I've no idea. I couldn't possibly tell you. Uh, what we do know is the fact that Macquarie was very swift in adopting his skills and he became a very, very successful um, and, and very known in Sydney as a, as a reliable clockmaker. In fact, he, he um, placed advertisements in the newspaper for being so reliable with his setting of his clocks. So, but we, and that's why we're quite excited about the book coming out, is that maybe we will learn a little bit more about him and where to position him in terms of clockmakers, but we, we don't know. All we know is the fact he was endorsed by the governor and ran a very successful business. Uh, everyone just said, uh, uh, according to the horologist, the chap who um, got the clock working here in Adelaide, he says there's nothing about the clock that he could tell was different from any English-made long-case clock at the time, except for these hallmark um, characteristics or details of the clock. So, um, uh, so he was clearly as good as what England was producing, and um, I suppose he came here to a smaller pond and he became Australia's best clockmaker, I suppose, at the yeah. time. <laughs> I don't think we're, we're looking at avant-garde clockmakers here, but what is avant-garde is, is the, the environment in which he was working. Some people have commented, and the horologists we've been talking to are talking about the rarity of the, the metal materials to get your hands on that material which composed of brass and lead and, and so forth, very hard to come by in the, in the colony. So it was a kind of um, Olympic achievement in, in that regard. Yeah. So we might finish there. And I do wish to thank you for your attention and your wonderful questions. And thank you, Justin. <laughs>